Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Welcome back to Talking Tudors episode 159. I'm your host Natalie Gruniger and I'm so thrilled that you could join me. I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a big difference. If you love the podcast and never miss an episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. June's prize is a book bundle containing the three novels in Tony Rich's Elizabethan series. A huge thank you to the author for sponsoring this wonderful prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. At the end of June, I'll be chatting to Brooke Little about the musical lives of the Tudor Queen's consort. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to register for this event. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtutors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tutors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTutors. Now let's get into today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to talk about their wonderful book, The Typical Tudor, is Dr. Jane Malcolm Davies and Ninia Michaela. Jane Malcolm Davies is Associate Professor of Textile Analysis at the Globe Institute, University of Copenhagen, where an interdisciplinary team is investigating medieval parchment as evidence for historical sheep husbandry. Her first degree is in journalism and she holds postgraduate diplomas in heritage interpretation and law. Jane lectured in entrepreneurship and heritage management at the University of Surrey, introduced costumed interpreters at Hampton Court Palace, and coordinated training for the front of house team at Buckingham Palace each summer. She developed a method for benchmarking the impact of costumed interpretation on visitors' perceptions of heritage experiences for her doctoral research. Ninia Michaela established her business making reconstructions of historic costumes for museums and heritage sites in 1994. After gaining a higher national diploma in costume interpretation at the London College of Fashion, her clients include Historic Royal Palaces, the Royal Armouries, the National Trust, English Heritage, the National Archives, and Gainsborough's House. Ninia's work receives high critical acclaim for its accuracy and craftsmanship. 
She's chair of the Medieval Costume and Textile Society and led Nottingham University's course on the social history of Tudor dress. Nina featured in the six-part BBC television series A Stitch in Time, which demonstrated what reconstructing historical clothing can tell us about people in the past. Our conversation's coming straight up after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. Welcome to Talking Tudors. I am so excited to have Ninya and Jane with me from the Tudor Taylor. And I'm going to get each of you to introduce yourself. So, so maybe Jane, would you like to go first? Mm, difficult to know where to start, really. I'm one of those people I've had a very, I think it's called a portfolio career, where you've done lots of different things. So I'm a jack of all trades and perhaps master of none. My first degree is actually in journalism, but I've got postgraduate qualifications in law and um, heritage interpretation. And it's really my interest in how history is presented to the public in historic sites that has led me to the world of reconstruction of historic dress by way of reenactment, because um, both Nina and I started out in this um, this world volunteering as costumed people at historic sites. Wonderful. Thank you. And Nina? Yeah, to pick up on what Jane just said, that um, I guess my beginning was going to reenactments in my teenage years and making and wearing the costumes was a really uh, important part of it for me and so I naturally went towards studying reconstructing dress and went to the London College of Fashion in the early 1990s and um, around the same time Jane had started working at Hampton Court Palace managing the costumed interpretation program there and so she was one of my first clients among other museums and heritage sites for you know his historically accurate reconstructed dress so our beginning together um, was yeah it was all that time ago really. <laughs> yeah. And, and in fact, we, we could say we met in 1520, because the first time we, we met in costume was at Kentwell Hall, um, where we were both volunteering. And I, I have to say, I'm not proud of the costume I was wearing in 1520, but um, things got better. And yeah, it was a pleasure to start working with Nina because she she came from the same sort of background. And that's really, I think, why we have a good collaborative partnership. That's wonderful. And you're actually both also the co-authors and co-editors of a number of excellent books. And I'm sure many of my listeners have heard about them. The Tudor Taylor, The Tudor Child, The King's Servants and The Queen's Servants. But today we're actually here to chat about your latest book, which will be coming out soon, The Typical Tudor. So what was the inspiration behind this project? Well, 
I think we had a plan once upon a time to go chronologically through the ages and do books on uh, the Tudors and then the Stuarts and then the Georgians and then maybe pop back into the medieval period. And uh, actually what's happened is we, we did the Tudor tailor and uh, found that we'd raised more questions in a way than we had answered. And uh, the book was incredibly well received. It, it was such a delight to put it out there because we both had, I think, anxieties about publishing this stuff and being held to account and criticised and that it really didn't happen. We just had people saying more, 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 and we want to know more. And particularly people wanted to know more about what ordinary people wore. So it was right back in 2006 when we literally only just published the Tudor Taylor that we started thinking, actually, we'd really like to delve deeper into this. And we've not really left the 16th century. <laughs> well, it is my, my favourite, favourite century. So I, I totally understand. And, and I think one thing that I love, there's so much to love about your books, but one thing that I love is that it can appeal to so many people. I don't sew. Maybe one day I'll have a go and, and, you know, make it one of the patterns, but they're still such a fantastic resource. So, you know, it's just a, a wide reaching thing and I, I really love it. So um, the other thing I wanted to ask you in terms of people's clothing, what do you think that actually revealed about people in the 16th century? Well, I, I think one of the things that really makes a contrast between our attitudes to clothing today and, and people in the 16th century is that clothing wasn't really a way of expressing your individuality. It was functional. And one of its functions was to help you fit in to your appropriate place in society. And I think a lot of people nowadays find that quite hard to understand. Um, we think of how you choose colours or you choose fabrics or you choose styles which are about how you want to present yourself but in the 16th century you expected to present yourself in a particular way to fit in with your role in society and so it's a very different way of thinking about clothes I think. Yeah absolutely. Nina did you want to add anything to that? No I mean I, yeah that's exactly how I would yep. frame it and you know within, within that there are particular garments and items of headwear and uh trends in things like colours that we'll I think we'll probably talk about later that help to kind of identify what you might what place in society you might occupy and even down to specific trades but the, I, I definitely agree that the overarching thing is that you you fit into a conventional very conventional Tudor society. Yes absolutely and it's it's interesting because you know, of course if you went back in time and you met someone you really wouldn't know their status and other things just by looking at what they're wearing which is which is quite interesting and I've spent quite a bit of time looking at what sort of the nobility wore and, and noble women, but what about ordinary women at this time? What are the, the main pieces of clothing that they're wearing? Well, they're quite quite simple, really, the main pieces of clothing that, that women are wearing. I think in the old days when Jane and I started out doing these Tudor reenactments, we had this idea that fashion started at the top and kind of filtered down and was gradually watered down into a version that was worn by ordinary people at the bottom. And... Um, and therefore we ended up with quite a lot of kind of reenactment styles and uh, what Jane Jane termed fake law at the time where, you know, women would have these little bodices with kind of tabs on the shoulders and, you know, looking at the, the portraits of Queen Elizabeth and thinking, well, something like that, but maybe in wool. But actually the styles are quite, quite distinct and they're very simple and very practical. So the, the main uh, garment that women wear is the terminology is quite confusing because it's sometimes known as a kirtle. The main kind of fitted dress with a, a fitted bodice and a skirt is known as a kirtle. But also, and especially by the end of the 16th century, it's referred to as a petticoat. So we do end up saying 
kirtles and petticoats a lot of the time. So you've got a fitted bodice and a skirt, and they are usually nearly always made from wool. Men and women are wearing these garments over the top of linen underwear. Everyone's wearing linen underwear. Um, and then you might have an outer layer to keep you warm or to uh, dress more smartly for going to church or going to market, for example. So you might have a, a waistcoat or a jacket or a gown. And then some of the most important elements of women's wardrobes, ordinary women in the 16th century, is, is linen, uh, which was referred to as small wearing linen. So various items of shoulder wear, neck wear and headwear. I think people often forget, especially nowadays, when there's all this controversy about certain cultures insisting that women have their heads covered. You know, we were in that culture in the 16th century, very much. So women always had their heads covered. The linen that they wore to cover their heads was one of their most precious things. It was a source of pride. It was kept very carefully. The ideal was that it be clean and white and was often uh, composed of many layers. In our survey of documents that we've used for the typical Tudor, these items of small wearing lin linen are among the most numerous items of clothing owned by women. And do we know much about shoes? I'm always fascinated by shoes because we don't we only get a little glimpse of them, don't we? Sometimes in portraits and things. You've um you've hit on our blank spot there, Natalie. <laughs> oh sorry, apologies. Neither and I neither and I eschew shoes on the basis that <laughs> we we've never done any detailed analysis of evidence of shoes and we rely on other people who are better informed having said that there's a huge number of footwear in our database of documents that Nina just alluded to unfortunately compared to a lot of the other garments that we can research that way footwear is really never well very very rarely described in detail so unlike other garments where we can say most smocks are made of linen, most shirts are made of linen, most coats are made of wool. With shoes, they're just shoes. Um, it's very rare that we know what colour they were or what leather, leather they were made of. So yeah, it's our, <laughs> you've, you've, hit our, you've hit our empty vessel there. No problem, thank you. And, and what about men of the lower and middle class? What, what are they wearing at this point? Well, most, um, most people's clothes start with a, a linen um, undergarment. So men would be wearing a linen shirt and then they they're usually wearing some sort of leg covering which is generically called hose and as the century progresses hose gets more that the words used to describe it are more descriptive so we can talk about breeches and gaskins and, and different types of hose but early in the century it's typical for that legwear to be like we'd think of as a pair of tights but made of an elastic fabric known as kersey in most cases. And then a doublet, which throughout the century, the, the most um, usual fabric described for a, for a doublet is fustian, which is an interesting fabric we might be able to talk a bit more about later. And then a coat is very, is very common um, on, on top of um, either instead of or it could be on top of a, a doublet. And that, that's again, that's usually made of wool. And then um, a knitted cap on their heads. And then there is a gown. You know, a lot of men have gowns, but um, gowns are very much status symbols. And um, as the century progresses, gowns um, are less prevalent and cloaks are more prevalent. But the sorts of people we're looking at in the typical Tudor, that's not as obvious as it is for people who are higher up the social scale. So the higher ranks of gentlemen and esquires, they're the ones who are adopting cloaks instead of gowns. So for a lot of the men we're looking at, 
um, a gown is often the, the most important garment that they're, they're mentioning in their wills. Right. OK. And I know when I've looked at um, some portraits, obviously, of, you know, aristocratic people and the nobility, the children are often dressed like little adults. And I know a lot of the time people comment things like, oh, how did they get their two year old into that? Or you look so uncomfortable. Or So what about the children of, of ordinary people? Are they wearing sort of little versions of the adult clothing? They, they kind of are. I mean, they're, they're not really gendered is, is a thing that is hard to us to relate to now. With young children, they're all wearing garments which have long skirts, whether they're boys or girls. And that, that's something that um, I know that coming from the reenactment world, I've seen many people trying and thinking, how on earth is my child <laughs> expected to learn to crawl inside these, these long skirts? But they, they, they do manage. And actually, surprisingly, they're quite a practical item of dress because uh, it's very easy with toilet training if there are no fitted trousers or breeches or anything like that to be able to just lift the skirts and allow the child to actually go to the toilet and so yes in some ways they are like like mini adults but there are certain items which do make it clear that they're children headwear is particularly uh, distinct for for children and also there are especially if you do look slightly into the upper classes where we have portraits that remain um, a great effort is made to convey whether the child is a boy or a girl through um, the accessories which are worn so for example a, a little boy will often have some kind of uh, small weapon or, or a belt um, instead of a silk girdle or a masculine style of hat instead of a feminine piece of headwear so there are distinctions but they're they're quite subtle I think to the modern eye we we look at these images and think they look like little versions of of the adults but actually there there were differences and the the work we did with Jane Huggett analyzing images of children for the, the Tudor child really demonstrated that that there were conventions in what children wore at different ages so by the time girls are reaching 12 or 13 that's when they they start to wear their first posh gown if you like so an indication that they're now on the marriage market little boys usually go from wearing the skirts to hose at seven or eight I mean there are instances of that happening earlier and instances of it happening later but they they then move from the world of women where they're being looked after by nursemaids or or the women of the family and they transfer if you like into the world of men and we we don't know for certain to what extent those patterns operated lower down the social scale um, but certainly that's the convention that we find from the the evidence we have for people higher up society. And in terms of how people are caring for their clothing at this point and storing them, obviously you know, people had minimal furniture around this time. So how are they stored and, and what do they do to ensure that they last? It's funny, isn't it, Jane? Because this is a, a subject that actually we've discovered a lot about through the, the research into the door. And we'd really love to put so much more of it in the book that we can actually <laughs> fit in because it is a really fascinating subject. And, and we've come across all these references to hutches and coffers and linen presses. So, yes, you're, you're right that there's minimal furniture in Tudor households compared to what we're used to. And especially the further down you go, the, the scale. But there are these basic chests where people are clearly carefully folding and, and keeping their clothes. And particularly the linen items, like I mentioned earlier, that great care is taken over keeping those clean. And also there's there's a kind of clue to the way that linen was stored in um, the visual record, because if you look carefully, you can often see that linen items like aprons, uh, sometimes headwear, have these 
very regular square or rectangular creases in them from where they've been folded into very small packets so that the container to put them in wouldn't actually have to be that big and, and pressed very tightly so that when they're brought out clean and fresh all those folds are crisply demonstrated and in a way the fact that those folds show to the to the onlooker demonstrates that they they literally have been taken clean from the press. Absolutely and in terms of caring for things I know people often say oh they didn't wash their clothes they must have been so smelly and that sort of thing but they actually did take great pride in themselves and their clothing do you want to tell us a little bit about cleaning you know keeping the clothes clean and that kind of thing? Well certainly um, having clean linen was a, a source of pride and a way of demonstrating your civility but even clothing made of uh, more challenging materials that can't actually be washed like um, your gown or your doublet or your coat or for a woman a kirtle or a petticoat the the convention seems to have been to have brushes and that even I mean we we know this partly because we see brushes being described in wardrobes or being left by people in their wills but if we look at the evidence for the royal wardrobe for example there were there were people employed as brushes of the king or the queen's clothes so if we think about the way that we look after our winter coats you know we don't we don't send them to the dry cleaners that often, but we might use a clothes brush to get off the dirt. You know, if you've got a, a, a particularly long winter coat that might get splashed with mud, you, you would use a, a stiff bristle clothes, clothes brush even today to, to clean it. So there was a lot more brushing going on and shaking, you know, shaking things out before you put them away making sure that they're as clean as they can be. And in, in some cases, there are even descriptions of clothes being stored in canvas bags. Again, th- this is pr- probably evidence for a higher up the social scale. But um, I, I think there's we've got one instance of uh, sheets of paper being purchased to put between clothes when they're stored. And um, there, are, there are, again, for people who are perhaps, you know, gentlemanly, they often had a, a servant, because we, we have to remember that the word servant can really put you anywhere in society. You could be a servant to a to a great lord, but you could also be a servant to uh, someone who's a, a small farmer. So if someone has a servant, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're very high status. And you'd find perhaps a, a, a simple gentleman might have a servant walking behind him with his cloak in a in a bag. So a cloak bag is is something we find in the in the references, and also um, cases for hats for example. So there, there are, as Nina says, we've, we've found a lot of information about storage solutions and um, and also how people looked after their clothes. And I, I think it, this is a topic that's probably worthy of yet another book. So, you know, as Nina says, we're trapped in the 16th century because there's so much more to share. Absolutely. Yeah, that does sound good. And I love all those details about how things were stored. I just feel like we can make a more powerful connection with them when we have those little everyday kind of bits of information. So you were talking earlier about, oh, sorry, Nina, did you want to add something? It did strike me as Jane was describing brushing out the winter coat that that's um, possibly a hard thing to imagine if you're in Australia or (laughs) very hot in America, for example. (laughs) Well, it's actually very chilly here at the moment. Chilly for an Australian anyway. For an Aussie, it's probably not for you. Well, but another analogy we like to use is um, if you think about a very expensive silk dress that you might wear to a, a very formal do, that, that would be another way to just make it more relatable that the way that clothes were treated then is not altogether different to the way we treat 
some of our clothes today. So um, they had an amazing array of, of techniques for spot cleaning, you know, the equivalent of dry cleaning in the 16th century. So clothes that couldn't be rigorously brushed out could be very carefully spot cleaned if there were grease stains or, or other sorts of marks on them. So extremely clever. <laughs> yes. And also, you know, earlier in the century, there's a lot of fur being worn. And fur, you know, nowadays we'd have no idea how to look after a fur. But there, again, there were specialist ways of keeping furs clean and then storing them, which, you know, the p- people who read our book who live in Canada would probably have far more um, understanding of how that all works because they still rely on fur in, in many places um, to keep them warm in the winter, which we've, you know, that's something it's very difficult for us to empathise with. And earlier you were talking about some different fabrics. You mentioned wool and a couple of others. So what were the the popular fabrics at the time? Well, I mean, wool, wool is the, the king of fabrics in the 16th century. And actually it's worn, it's worn at all levels of society. I mean, when you, when you say wool nowadays, you might, a certain kind of fabric might spring to mind and maybe it would be like a winter coat or a blanket. But in the 16th century, it, it could be a vast range of weights and finishes and um, and associated cost, depending on how much work had gone into producing the wool. So the most basic fabric of wool was a type that was commonly referred to as russet, which was nearly always what was known as sheep coloured. You know, literally <laughs> what, what you would think uh, any colour a sheep comes in could be a colour of russet. And it would be a plain weave, very little finishing, no dyeing. That's about the most kind of basic woolen fabric that a lot of people were wearing. And then the more complex the weave and the dye introduced and the finishing process, the more expensive and desirable the fabric becomes. So right at the top of the tree, you have broadcloths uh, and scarlet being the most expensive broadcloth that is um, so finely finished that the weave is completely obscured and it has a beautiful velvety surface uh, that drapes almost like like silk I mean it's absolutely gorgeous. We always joke that the the wool's desirability and expense depends on how far from the sheep it has come (laughs) so if it's very close to the sheep it's what a lot of people are wearing and if it has gone very far from the sheep through all these sorts of processes then it's much more expensive and it's much more desirable and therefore there's less of it. Having said that the very desirable wools of the late 16th century, the, the worsteds, nowadays if you if you saw a worsted many people wouldn't actually know it was wool because it it is a very sleek silky beautifully draping fabric and um, sometimes people ask us oh well well, what is worsted and Nina always has a really good answer which is you know a a good man's suit that's that's a worsted so we we still have it but that's what people were wearing in the later 16th century that's the most common um, desirable fabric for for gowns in the in the late 16th century so we, we are familiar with some of these fabrics but we just use them in a very different way today I was thinking about colours in Tudor times and I read a really fascinating article about all the different colours that Elizabeth I liked to wear and there was an entire page, some colours I'd never heard of and the author was trying to describe what some of these might look like. So what were some of the the colours that ordinary people were wearing at this point? Sheep. can actually be really beautiful. We've made quite a few ensembles that are various shades of sheep together and they're, they're just lovely if you go from cream and gray and brown and then almost black together it it, it can be really very attractive 
but you know, we, we alluded earlier to the fact that the Tudor society was very conventional. And this survey that we have just completed for the typical Tudors has just made that so clear in more ways than we could ever have imagined. And, and colour is one of the, the strongest messages that's come out of that, that whilst in theory, a Tudor person could choose to wear any any colour they wanted to, including some of the extraordinarily named shades that Queen Elizabeth wore. In fact, they wore a very small palette of, of colours. And, and even within that palette, there were strong conventions about which genders and which types of people wore those colours. So in our survey of all these, the documentary evidence, wills and household accounts and inventories, we have nearly 10,000 items of dress which are described by colour and uh, they fall into basically a kind of six or seven main colours which are black right at the top and there are quite a few reasons why black is the is the most the most numerous garments are are described as black and so one of them will be if you're going to describe a garment by colour in a in something like a will it's often to either differentiate it from other items of clothing that you are describing but also you're identifying your best often your best clothes and uh, black was often the color that the best clothes were dyed in addition it was used in association with mourning as well and so often in wills it's directed that people will be given black gowns to attend a funeral so that bumps the numbers a bit but even taking that into account black was a hugely popular color and then you have red and as Jane said, sheep colours, which could be a, a rainbow of natural sheep, sheep colours, and tawny, kind of orangey, orangey brown, that's a very uh, popular one. White, whether it's white linen or fustian or canvas or sheep colour, white. And blue, and, and blue is a really good example of, a, of how it's a colour associated with a very particular type of person, because it has a really strong association with working men's coats or servants' coats. Um, so apprentices and household servants often own blue coats and we have very few women's garments described as blue. And that's partly because dyeing cloth blue is relatively cheap and easy with woad, whereas other colours are more challenging to achieve. And you can dye in a vat of woad several times so that you can get different shades of of blue. And it is interesting that in our documentary evidence, there are a lot of men's garments described as blue, but we also have sky colour and azure um, and watch it, which watch it was one of the blues that came out of the dye bath at the end of its useful life. But one of, one of the things that we always feel is very interesting about colours is that we often have a vision that you know, people were dipping clothes into a bubbling cauldron over a fire. Dying in the 16th century, and indeed earlier, had been a massive, you know, it was a massive industrial process. And things were made in, the, in England and then exported to Holland to be dyed and then brought back to England. So there's a huge amount of trade um, to get things dyed to the best quality. And, um, and there, there are huge dye houses in places like Newbury, for example, in Berkshire. And we know a lot about the, the range of colours that were actually being produced in those places, as, which we can cross-reference with the information we have from 
the way people have, have described the colours of their clothes. So um, it's true that certain things were dyed at home. People did often re-dye their stockings at home, but mostly cloth was being dyed on an industrial scale. As Nina says, you know, there are conventions in which colours are used for which garments. And one of the things we found out a long time ago when we first dipped our toe in the water of um, documentary evidence was the prevalence of red for women's petticoats and kirtles. And this is something that we find not only for ordinary people, but also higher up society. The, the royal ladies are wearing crimson silks, whereas the lower class women are wearing red wool. So even the terminology for colour adapts to the type of fabric that it relates to. So crimson comes from kermes, which is an expensive dye stuff, and that's why it's associated with silks. Whereas madder is the is the dye that's being used for lower down the social scale. And did you find any reason for the fact that the red petticoats were so popular? It's not uh, helpfully written down anywhere. No, no Tudor woman has shared the information. <laughs> Unfortunately, like so many Tudor women secrets, you know, we um, a slight aside, we were very proud, Jane and I, of the fact that we managed to get menstruation into the index of the Tudor tailor. We yeah. said, if nothing else, we're going to get this in. Because again, it's one of those things that people wonder how, how did they manage and why did they do these things? And um, they're so every day and they apply to, to every woman. And so it's not written down anywhere it's just uh, it's just passed from from woman to woman and it's knowledge that is assumed you you just know looking at the overarching picture with with red um we do get the strong impression that it's it's a belief in the health giving benefits of wearing red close to the skin and it's not just for women actually I mean H Henry VIII's physician recommended that he should wear a, a scarlet petticoat which is a, a man's waistcoat or vest over the top of his shirt and under his doublet to keep him well and there's lots of lots of other I mean this again would be another great book all about red there's there's lots of other instances of an association of health giving properties of, of red with the the documentary evidence we have there are certain patterns in the data where there's a massive amount of clear st significant statistical evidence for something but then we get one or two instances of things that give you a kind of clue and one thing that we don't have a huge number of these instances but help us understand how this concept of red being a health giving color it was um how it manifested itself is that red linings are often described in garments uh, when a lining is described so as I say, there aren't huge numbers of them in our evidence, but there are enough for us to say, oh, so red linings were a thing. And um, even when you find fabrics listed in merchants' inventories where they're for sale, they might list the, the colours that are available for lining fabrics, and red is one of them. There are extant examples of clothing that have these red linings. There's a, a lovely jacket in Italy, which is uh, black lined with with red and it's not in a way that's to be displayed it's somehow a you know for, for some other purpose some almost functional purpose and and knitted caps as well I mean that was a real discovery wasn't it a few years ago yes the um the survey I did of um of all the um knitted caps that I could track down in many many collections often had linings inside them which hadn't really ever been recorded before and a lot of those seem to have been read so um, they're, they're knitted circles, flat circles of um, yarn. And um, by eye, it's, it, it looks as though they were red. But of course, 
a lot of them are archaeological examples. And really, we need to do dye analysis to be absolutely sure that it's just it's not just that other colours have leached out of the, the caps when they were buried. But there's also uh, pictorial evidence of people wearing red caps, um, you know, young, young boys, for example, wearing red caps. So, yeah, that's another example of if you want to if you want to keep yourself well, wear red linings in your clothes and particularly in your hat. So you've talked quite a lot about the documentary evidence that you've used and, and pictorial evidence. So what were the, the main sources, I suppose, of information that you used when reconstructing the dress of ordinary people? Tell the world about our pad. Yes. So I've recently been doing some work on, on this model for reconstructing uh, 16th century dress, which we came up with a long time ago, and that is the important, particularly if we're going to reconstruct dress as a, a scholarly research methodology, we need to have some sort of framework that we use in order to make sure that it is credible. And we believe in the triangulation of, of data, as, as anyone would who wants to do good scientific work. And the triangulation of data that we employ is pictorial evidence, artifactual evidence, and documentary evidence. And we call this our pad, and that's the firm foundation on which any reconstruction should stand. We explored how we could look at pictorial evidence methodological way with Jane Huggett for the Tudor child, where we tabulated all the garments that were visible in portraits of children and then did statistical analysis of that information. And then um, we've, Nina and I have had a number of very exciting adventures going to see original um, artifacts to do a survey of as much clothing that was worn by ordinary people as possible. And um, again, we've tried to be systematic about how we've recorded the information that we've been able to gather in that way. But I think our, our Meisterwerk, if you want to call it that, is this database of documentary evidence which is the the main source for the typical Tudor and um, a long time ago just just as we were really publishing the Tudor Taylor Nina had this brilliant idea that we could take highlighter pens and look through transcribed volumes of wills and highlight all the garments that were listed and then many many evenings were spent doing this and I said well Right, now we need to put all of that into some sort of form where we can use it. And this is where the great, the great project to record all of these garments in spreadsheets began. And then ultimately to build a bespoke database into which those spreadsheets could go so that we could come out, come, come to the point where we could get an overview of the clothing described in those documents. And we, we spread our net wider than wills. We looked at inventories and we do also have um, a lot of information from the Royal Scots Court, where huge numbers of garments were recorded for the servants of the, the king and the queen. And we've, had, we've actually had a lot of help in this process from all sorts of people who've driven themselves mad with highlighter pens and spreadsheets and I've driven myself mad doing the data analysis of all of this so we do have a database of 57,000 items of dress recorded in these various documents which gives us a massive a massive amount of evidence that we can draw on to suggest what are the conventional patterns in textiles colours um, and garments for for people between 1585 and 1603. That's the short answer to that question. That's extraordinary. That's an astounding number. My goodness. And, and I'd love to hear just a little bit more 
just before we end our conversation, a little bit more about some of those artifacts you were talking about. I know that there's, I've seen quite a lot of, you know, 16th century clothing in European collections. Is there much in, in the UK in terms of Tudor clothing? Uh, again, the short answer to that is no. <laughs> the 16th century is not well represented by no. surviving clothing. And a really important question to ask yourself when you're presented with a piece of surviving clothing is why has this survived? Has it survived because it was an ordinary and everyday object or is it more likely that it survived because it was extraordinary and something very special associated with a very particular event in someone's life, particularly beautiful and exquisite? Uh, we do have a lot of those sorts of examples that survive in the well-known collections of uh, the V&A and Bath um, for example. And then the further down the scale you go, the harder it becomes really to find items of dress that you can use as, as reference. So in the UK, an amazing one is, is the Mary Rose, the ship that sank in the 1540s, Henry VIII's warship. But you, you have to do a lot of detective work on the pieces because the garments were under the sea for a very long time. What survives is fragmentary in terms of each individual garment but also fragmentary in the representation of a whole wardrobe so for example linen items don't didn't survive under the sea uh, but we know that sailors and soldiers would have been wearing linen shirts from other sources even the wool doesn't doesn't survive very well at all there's fragments of wool but what does survive is is leather so there are lots of fragments of leather jerkins from the mary rose and that on its own it comes back to this triangulation of the sources again, because that on its own, we wouldn't know how representative it was of ordinary men's clothing. But when we back it up with the evidence we have from our documentary database, we can tell you that yes, leather jerkins, leather doublets are very much a conventional item of clothing for an, for an ordinary man, even if he's not a sailor or a soldier. So it's at, this sort of evidence is absolutely invaluable, but it has to be used in conjunction with other sources. We, we have gone quite a lot further afield to look for evidence for ordinary people's clothing. So as Jane said, we've been on some exciting adventures and, and the most exciting has to be the uh, items of clothing we looked at in Red Bay in Labrador. Uh, which we'd heard about over the years, you know, these hints of uh, the clothing that survived from the whaling expeditions that went from uh, the Basque country in Spain over to Labrador annually. And unfortunately, sometimes these ships overstayed. They, they were there too long. They went in the summer and sometimes the winter came in quicker than they expected and they didn't get home again. So sadly, many of them died out in Labrador where they were doing the, the whaling and they were buried in fairly shallow graves along the coastline and many of their garments survive and they're just uh, extraordinary survivals and a real window into what ordinary sailors were wearing. That's another book isn't it Jane? We, we learned a lot about sailors <laughs> we didn't expect to learn. <laughs> we've, we've been promising to write a book on mariners for a very long time and we know that there are an awful lot of people who are really keen to know more and actually I think we've given several presentations that that book really shouldn't take us very long to write because we've exhausted many many sources and as Nina said we had such an exciting time in in Labrador it was very it was very evocative to see the landscape and the the sea and the site of where this ship was trapped over winter and the the environment in which these people perished so to see these fragments of their clothes and in some cases whole garments not in good condition but enough that we were able to examine them 
and understand how they were constructed and what they were made of. We, we learned a lot from, from these uh, archaeological remains in Labrador. One of the really funny things about that trip was that we learned far, far more about whaling than we really ever wanted to learn. There was a lot of gruesome evidence about whaling, which was, again, very, very evocative. And, and we also went to a place which I don't know if there are many of these in the world where they have a, a half hour time zone difference. So um, we crossed a time zone difference in the car when we went to the supermarket. And I, I never quite got my head around that. It was a really, it was a really interesting trip. We had a great time. We're very much welcomed by Park, the Parks Canada staff there. And, um, and it was a, it was a really revealing trip in terms of what you can learn from, from the evidence of real garments, even when they're in a fragmentary status, as Nina says. There was even a knitted cap, so I was very happy. <laughs> That's amazing. That sounds wonderful. And and yes, yeah, so I think I'm counting now. I think you have four other books, ladies, that you need to, to write within, I don't know how long. So you're going, to, you're going to be very busy, very busy. <laughs> now, I'm sure that people listening, you know, want to know more about your work and your books. So where can they go to find out more information? We have a website, which is www.tudortaylor.com. And most of, most information can be found there. Um, and our contact information is there too. And we, you know, we're always happy to hear from people who are interested in what we do and, and the research that we're carrying out. And we also have a shop and Nina is the shop guru. So I'll let her give you the details of that. And the shop guru, yeah, the shop is housed in the, in my studio in, in Nottingham and it's actually run by Melanie uh, and it's currently an Etsy shop, although, um, we're hoping quite soon it will be a, a Shopify shop, but it's it's really grown actually in in the last couple of years. Um, I think a lot of like a lot of kind of hobby and craft based businesses because we sell as well as our books patterns for making uh, Tudor clothing and fabrics and buttons, lace, all sorts of things that it, that you might need to complete your outfit. I think a lot of people started projects uh, over the last couple of yeah. years and. Uh, we've been very busy so it's come from Melanie used to come in six hours a week and now she does 25 hours and uh, uh -huh. is <laughs> very busy <laughs> but that's on Etsy at the moment uh, just the Tudor Taylor on Etsy. All right the very last thing that I that I ask my guests um, you've been very generous with your time already is what I call a Tudor takeaway so this is just something for our listeners to go off and explore after the show so do you have a suggestion for us? Uh, my suggestion, I'm going to be very self-indulgent here and say that I have put a lot of the research that I did into knitted caps into a database built by our amazing Tudor Taylor database developer and website designer, Jodie. You can visit it at www.keemeresearch.com. And um, what I tried to do with that database was make available to anybody who's interested in looking at original artifacts, a lot of photographs and detailed technical information. I, I think for, for a lot of our readers, the thing that can be very frustrating is that they don't have easy access to original material like perhaps we, we're privileged to have. And I really wanted this database to be a portal for anybody who's interested in early evidence for knitting. Um, to be able to go and explore it for themselves. And I, I really welcome feedback from people. It's recently been enhanced by the addition of nearly 100 pairs of liturgical gloves knitted in silk 
which were researched by my colleagues in the Knitting in Early Modern Europe project, Leslie and Ang Harad. And um, they're a real contrast to the knitted caps um, because they're very delicate and beautiful, whereas the knitted caps are much more chunky and functional. And I, I hope eventually that we'll be able to add stockings to the database as well. So I, I invite everybody to, to visit um, the Knitting in Early Modern Europe website and register so they can get in and have a look at that evidence. Nia, did you want to add something? Yeah, I have. It was quite hard to choose, really. I have quite a few that I would suggest, but I think in terms of very easily accessible, I have a real soft spot for Ian Mortimer's Time Traveller's Guide to Elizabethan England, because I'm sure that lots of your listeners will already be familiar with it. But the concept is that you you have got it's like a rough guide or a lonely planet guide to Elizabethan England. And it's as if you've gone back in time and you're literally walking along the roads. And he describes as you walk into a city here on your left, you'll see this building and then you might see a group of people that might be apprentices and they're dressed like this. And uh, I think it's a really transporting and, and wonderful way to actually relate to the period and it's very much not us and them it's it's like an introduction to the period and it comes as an audiobook as well so it's quite a nice thing to listen to if you're working on something at, at the same time so wonderful they're excellent takeaways and and you've given us lots to reflect on and think about so thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and talking tutors with me thank you're you welcome. for inviting us Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.